Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, we are honored to have uh, Professor Joseph McBride with us. Joseph McBride is a cinema professor at San Francisco State University. He has written and edited uh, about 24 books, books such as Frank Capra, The Catastrophe of Success, Steven Spielberg, a biography and searching for John Ford. And he has also written three books on Orson Welles, and today he's here to talk to us about his latest book, Billy Wilder, Dancing on the Edge, a book which was published by Columbia University Press. Joseph, welcome to New Books Network. Great to be on your program. Thank you very much for having me. Um, Joseph, you have a fascinating career. Uh, you were a journalist. You've worked and talked with some of the most uh, well-known Hollywood directors, and you're also a professor of cinema. Can you tell us a little about yourself? What attracted you to cinema? Uh, how did you become a journalist and then a cinema professor? Uh, I've been a journalist since 1960. My parents were journalists in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I started publishing uh, articles in magazines in 1960. And I, I began doing it in a big way um, in the late 60s when I discovered film as a, as a subject. I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison and I saw Citizen Kane uh, in September 1966 and that changed my life. I was going to become a journalist and a novelist and I decided instead to uh, write about films and make films and uh, so I've written all these books and I uh, 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 was a screenwriter and TV writer for a while. I'm, I'm retired from that now. Um, I won some awards for that. Uh, but I've uh, been a journalist. I mean, I'm still a journalist. And I worked for Daily Variety in Hollywood, which was really great for me because in the early 70s when I arrived, um, I got to go on sets of films. Today it's harder to go on sets because it's more corporate you know, publicity and they, they kind of don't want reporters around. But I was able to go on the set of almost every film I wanted. I watched Hitchcock shooting his final film, Family Plot, and I watched uh, Hal Ashby shooting... Bond for Glory. I watched Billy Wilder shooting the front page. And that was actually before I, I worked for Variety. I was working for a, a paper of, uh, in Riverside, California, and I came in to study Wilder. I've been writing about Wilder for more than 50 years in film magazines. I started writing about, uh, well, I wrote a career profile of him in 1970 with Michael Wilmington for Film Quarterly. And then I reviewed Private Life of Sherlock Holmes and Avanti. I like his later work very much. It was not terribly well received in America, but I liked it, still do. And uh, <clears throat> so the variety job was <clears throat> wonderful. I got to interview anybody I wanted, and all, all the great, a lot of the great filmmakers are still around, even from the silent days. And I got to meet everybody. I, I really set out to interview all the directors and writers and other people I admired. Got to most of them, and. Um, published articles in film magazines, interviews. And also I was on the uh, production of Other Side of the Wind, Orson Welles' uh, 
a major film of his later years. From 1970 to 76, I was an actor in that film. I played a young film critic and historian who's writing a book on the John Huston character. I'm following him around asking kind of silly, pretentious film buff questions, which I was able to write with Wells. We had a lot of fun writing these questions and he would make them even more absurd. So I, that was my film school, uh, being on a set of a film, you know, back in Wisconsin, I, I'd only seen one film being shot, The Emigrants and The New Land. Actually, it's two films, Jan Trell's film about um, Swedish immigrants coming to the Midwest, and I was able to watch them shoot. But I didn't know much about how films were made till I came to Hollywood. So I was on all these sets, which was very educational. And then I was working with Wells as an actor, which is very good training for a screenwriter. And uh, I wrote my first book on Wells when I was in college at the University of Wisconsin. It was published in 1972. It's called Orson Wells. It's a critical study in the British Film Institute's very good series, Cinema One. They had a lot of good books on filmmakers and genres. And I did a book on John Ford, a critical study called John Ford with Mike Wilmington in Madison. That was published by the British Film Institute Cinema 2 series in 1974. So I did those before I went to California. And then I've concentrated mostly on screenplays for a while, but I did some other books. I did Hawks on Hawks, an interview book with Howard Hawks. I spent seven years interviewing him. And I got to meet Frank Capra in 1975 and realized he was very different from his uh, public image. and. Eventually, I wrote, um, the best things I wrote as a screenwriter, the most uh, satisfying were five American Film Institute Life Achievement Award shows. And I got to work with legendary people, um, Jimmy Stewart, uh, Fred Astaire, Frank Capra, John Huston, and Lillian Gish were the honorees. And uh, I, I also had the job of recruiting all the people to come and talk about them, you know, their former colleagues and actors and directors and um, it was quite an interesting job because sometimes there were uh, enmities that had sprung up and, and I, I had the job of trying to talk people into coming to the shows which was interesting uh, uh, Claudette Colbert hadn't gotten along with Frank Capra and I, I went to see her in New York and got her to be on the show and Betty Davis didn't get along with Capra and we got her on the show and um, I spent weeks on the phone with Ginger Rogers trying to persuade her to come to the Fred Astaire show. I didn't realize they, they didn't get along very well, and she ultimately didn't come, but it was interesting. Uh, we had a lot of stars. I worked with all kinds of legendary people that a youngish screenwriter would normally never work with. It was great, a really wonderful experience. It was kind of like film criticism for the masses. It was on CBS television, and, you know, we'd have like a million viewers, and, uh, you know, it was uh, telling uh, about their careers and analyzing their films, but in a popular vein. And I also wrote Rock and Roll High School as one of the writers, which has become a cult classic. It's a punk rock musical with the Ramones that is still very popular, keeps coming out on home video. So I, I, I learned a lot by being a screenwriter, being in the trenches. You know, I, I couldn't have written my biographies as well if I didn't really know the business from the inside out, because a lot of times people who write books don't really understand the workings of uh, filmmaking or the, uh, the business aspects. And, and I, I had access to all the creative people and my interview books, I uh, interviewed hundreds of people, um, uh, you know, for my books uh, and I really thoroughly researched them. The Capra books took seven and a half years. I had legal uh, problems stemming from 
Capra's archivist, Janine Basinger of Wesleyan University, and <clears throat> my editor at Knopf, Robert Gottlieb, tried to stop the book or, or uh, censor the book because I was finding out all kinds of things about Capra that nobody knew, such as that he was an informer in the blacklist period. And his autobiography is almost entirely a lie. So I was correcting the record and they didn't like that. They wanted to sanitize it. But I, I fought this battle for four years and I won. But I didn't realize I was writing a book at the same time. I was, uh, I kept voluminous records for legal reasons. And I wrote a book called Frankly Unmasking Frank Capra in 2019, which is all about the legal struggle and also the research involved in trying to find out the truth about Capra. And I spent a year interviewing him too, and I interviewed 175 of his um, colleagues and acquaintances. And uh, it's as thoroughly researched as you could possibly do. And I did similar uh, research for Ford and Spielberg. So so that's my career. And I keep, uh, I got a full-time teaching job in 20, 2002 which I enjoy uh, talking to young people and, and introducing them to great films and analyzing them. And I'm teaching right now courses on Ford and Wells, and it's exciting to introduce young people to these uh, films that they don't wouldn't see otherwise. Um, and uh, I write books on the side. I had actually four books come out in a short period last fall, the Wilder book and a book called Political Truth, uh, the media and the assassination of President Kennedy, which is my second book on the Kennedy assassination, which is a topic I've been studying since the 60s. And I did a book on the Coen brothers called The Whole Dern Human Comedy, Life According to the Coen brothers, and updated my uh, book, Whoever, uh, Whatever Happened to Orson Welles, A Portrait of an Independent independent career. All four books came out almost at once, which was, I won't do that again, but I'm, you know, I'm always writing books. I've been writing books since I was in high school, actually. You have actually made me very jealous. You mentioned all my favorite actors and directors. <laughs> what a fantastic career journey. And, and I could see that uh, you, you don't really write books or biographies like a typical biographer or an academic. You're more like an investigative journalist um i could tell that from uh, from the story of your book with Fra about frank capra yeah i was i was interviewed for uh, our school did a series of um video profiles of our professors and the uh interviewer said how would you describe yourself and i, I thought for a moment i said investigative reporter you know and that's what i've been doing my whole life because uh when i was a kid i felt i you know i've been lied to by um uh, my parents uh, and the schools and the Catholic Church and the political system, uh, you know, all presented things that were not really true. And I wanted to get behind the curtain. And uh, there's a documentary a, a former student made about me called Behind the Curtain, uh, which is about my career as a journalist. But that's what I've been doing my whole life is trying to find out the hidden truths about people. And when you write a biography, as a, another biographer advised me, what the public wants is to uh, to read about somebody they think they know, but to find out things they didn't know about the person. And there's no point in just rehashing the surface uh, stories, which are often false anyway, but to really dig into um, what made them tick and how they became who they were and problems they had and what made them, you know, important creative artists. I, I still like Frank Capra's films, even though I found out many things about him that were uh, disillusioning. 
as a man, but he's still a, a great filmmaker. I like his films even more. The more I know about them, I understand them better. And Ford is my favorite director, and uh, Spielberg. I, and I've, I've been a huge fan of Billy Wilder my whole career because even when I was a kid, I was fascinated by Some Like It Hot and other films. Uh, really, you know, I call him my sex education teacher because he, he educated me about sex with Some Like It Hot and Irma LaDuce. I was a repressed Catholic kid, and I, I, he opened up this whole world to me, and it was so sophisticated and so witty and so clever. So I've been a uh, he's meant a lot to me. He opened my mind, and uh, I've been studying him forever. And I, I, you know, I got to meet him in 1974. I watched him shoot the front page with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau, and uh, that was a wonderful day. And I interviewed him numerous times over the years and got a lot of that into the book, you know. And I also include things that were not published at the time, you know, that I, I had notes from the interviews. And so it was a, a rare opportunity to get to know uh, somebody uh, – you know, like I did a book on Ernst Lubitsch, who was his mentor, uh, great filmmaker, but he died in 1947, so none of us really got to interview Lubitsch. But um, I, I, I wrote the three big biographies, Capra, Ford, and Spielberg, and those are really uh, hard to do, a lot of work for years, very expensive because you have to travel around and interview all the people. It's, it's, it's really fun doing the research, but I couldn't afford to do it anymore because I would pour my own money into these things because you get an advance. It's never enough to do it the way you want. So I, I, I can't really afford to do those biographies. The, the public doesn't buy film biographies as much as they should. They're not as interested in film directors as one would hope. So I went back to writing critical studies, which is what I did in my beginnings. I wrote critical studies of Ford and Wells, which is, you know, focusing on the films with some biographical information. You know, I interviewed Ford back then, I, and I knew Wells. But so I've gone back to critical studies with Lubitsch and Wilder, and I find that fascinating because their, their work is so rich um, that you could go at great length and great depth into their careers. And I did some research on their lives to fill in gaps, but there've been, um, you know, some good biographies of Billy Wilder, for example, I didn't have to write another biography, but I, I filled in some gaps, for example, about his later work, um, <clears throat> what he was doing during the long period when he, he wasn't allowed to make films anymore after, uh, his last film, Buddy Buddy was an unfortunate fiasco. And, uh, for 22 years, he, he was unable to make films. And what was he doing during that period? I found out. I interviewed people who knew him, and and um, you know, I talked about some projects he tried to develop, and um, what, what else is he doing? And it's kind of a story. He was a man who was exiled several times in his life, um, and he wound up in what I call internal exile in Hollywood, living there in this place that he loved, but he couldn't work, you know, and. Uh, but previously, he had come from uh, what is now Poland. It was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And his parents moved to Krakow. And then they moved to Vienna. And then he moved. Uh, he was a journalist in Vienna. And then he became a journalist in Berlin, which was really the center of uh, excitement and creative activity in that period. But then when Hitler came, he had to, had to flee. He went to Paris, spent a year or so in Paris, and then he 
he was exiled again to the U.S. and he had to learn English and learn a new film industry. It took him a few years, but then he began being very successful writing for Lubitsch and other directors. And then he got to direct films. He directed a film in Paris, actually, called Mauvais Grand, which means Bad Seat. In 1934, co-directed it. It's a good film. It's sort of like an early new wave film, like Breathless, shot on the streets of Paris. And then in 1941-42, he directed his first Hollywood film, The Major and the Minor. And after that, he was, you know, successful Hollywood director. So uh, he had quite a peripatetic life. He was a very restless fellow, partly due to um, being in exile. You know, you're constantly moving and being uprooted and you have to be very nimble and uh, but he was that kind of guy physically and psychologically he was even as a kid he was very restless and his his father ran a series of railroad cafes so the, the family moved around a lot they spent a lot of their time on trains and in hotels and you see trains and hotels throughout Wilder's films like Some Like It Hot for example and that's the kind of life that he knew a life in movement and um you know, if you're in exile threatened by Hitler, you got to keep moving. And he was, even when he wrote scripts, he would walk around the office and his collaborator, Charles Brackett or I.L. Diamond would sit at a typewriter or lie on the couch and Billy would be uh, spewing ideas and the collaborator would be writing them down. And uh, that's the way he worked. And when I interviewed him in his office, uh, he would be moving around a lot, you know, and he would swing a golf club or a stick or, you know, like a, some kind of a, a club or something. And, and uh, sometimes people like Raymond Chandler worked with him on Double Indemnity. He didn't like it that Wilder was swinging a stick around. He found that intimidating. You know? But that was the kind of guy he was. Uh, Jack Lemmon said, if there's a picture somewhere of Billy Wilder sitting down, it's probably at the Smithsonian Institute because I've never seen one, you know. <laughs> he was He was always in motion. Yeah, yeah, he's had a fascinating life, very difficult at times. And uh, you do mention in your book that Wilder's perpetually restless nature was the result of an area life in constant motion. And can you tell us about the title of the book, Dancing on the Edge? You kind of liken him to a cabaret dancer. Uh, and he, he always felt, did, did he always feel like an outsider? Because as you mentioned, he was an exile on two different levels, both from his own country and also in Hollywood. Yeah, he was Jewish, and um, he uh, felt very much an outsider in Vienna in school. He had suffered some anti-Semitism from his classmates, and he, he said Vienna was more anti-Semitic when he was there than Berlin, when he was there from the late 20s until 33, and of course Hitler took over in 33, but uh, Vienna, he said, was worse, and um uh, I, I remember um, I interviewed Peter O'Toole, who worked with Otto Preminger, who was an Austrian as well, and he actually uh, went to this, well, he went to the University of Vienna, which Wilder was going to go to, to study to be a lawyer, but he didn't go there, but uh, Preminger told O'Toole, he said, the real Nazis are Austrians. Hitler was an Austrian, and Hitler took over Austria. Uh, so Wilder was called a dirty Pollock and, and things like that by his classmates, and he, he was made to feel uh, different. So he was an outsider all the time, and an outsider looking in has a good perspective on society. And then being a, um, a Eastern European coming to America, you know, you're constantly an outsider. He had an accent, which was 
delightful accent, but he was conscious of it and he became a little self-conscious, but he, people found it charming and delightful, but um, Salka Vertel, who was another important exile, uh, had a kind of salon in Hollywood. She said that sometimes people would be condescending about people's accents. They'd say, oh, isn't that cute or whatever, you know? And um, he was made to feel different, but he, he used that to have a satirical perspective on American society. He was a, quite a strong critic of American society, even though he loved America for the, the freedoms we had. He loved the uh, Bill of Rights, and uh, he said the Supreme Court was the most important thing about America. If he were around today, he would be rather disturbed by the, what's happening with the Supreme Court. But um, he, he valued the freedoms because he, he escaped from a totalitarian regime. And uh, so he had this complex perspective all the time on uh, different societies that he lived in, and that helped him as a filmmaker. On the title you mentioned, Dancing on the Edge, yeah. Yeah, I got that partly, uh, there's a, a fellow named Peter Gay who writes good um, books on Weimar Germany, uh, which was the period before Hitler came in, a uh, period of great artistic ferment and a lot of political uh, violence and struggle different governments succeeded each other, but it was an exciting time that Wilder lived through as a journalist and then a screenwriter. Um, Peter Gay wrote about how people, you know, were on the edge of the abyss. And I, uh, Wilder was a dancer. Uh, to help support himself, he became a uh, Eintanzer, which translates tea dancer. And an Eintanzer was a job at, at a hotel or two hotels in Berlin he would dance with uh, ladies, sometimes older ladies, sometimes younger ladies, who would give him tips. And um, in the afternoons, and uh, they would have these dances, and he'd get all dressed up and were, and put on, you know, cologne and stuff, and kind of feminized to some extent. And then he would be dancing with these ladies and have to be charming. And he was a very good dancer. He had a sense of rhythm and. Uh, he, he had a girlfriend, and he, they taught the Charleston and other dances to people, too, to make a living. And he wrote a great, his, his most important journalistic piece is called Waiter, Bring Me a Dancer. Or it's also called From the Life of an Eintanzer. And it's a five, it's a several-part series. It's really terrific. It would make a great movie. It's kind of like Cabaret, in a way, about his life, which is sort of demeaning, you know, to be a dancer for hire, and all the rituals you go through to doll yourself up and, and be charming and uh, uh, talk to the ladies and some of the humiliating uh, incidents that happen. It would be a marvelous film. It's written like a film. His journalism has been collected in three different volumes, um, uh, one in Germany, one in Austria, and, and recently in America there's a selection of his journalistic pieces. not complete, but it's good. Um, and... Uh, you know, it's, he covered a lot of topics. He was not a crime reporter, as, as he claimed to me. He was more uh, kind of writing human interest stories about unusual people. And a lot of them have echoes in his later work, like he wrote about an aging actress who's kind of sad, and it reminds you of Sunset Boulevard, you know, very empathetic. And he wrote, uh, he was a obsessed with a group of English dancers called the Tiller Girls. He had very sexual uh, interest in these girls. He dated one of them, and he wrote some very hilarious pieces. They came by train. It's kind of like some like that, girls on the train and getting off the train with a strict uh, mistress running the show. And uh, he wrote about 
all kinds of odd characters and uh, some famous people. He wrote about um, Eric von Stroheim and um, the Prince of Wales, uh, who later became king briefly and abdicated. And uh, he wrote some very uh, intriguing, uh, insightful profiles, you know, showing signs of psychological acuity and also drama he wrote things that were um look uh, you know you could tell he was had dramatic instincts like a filmmaker but sometimes he told me the the uh, series about being a nine tensor was semi-fictionalized you know you can't be totally sure that all of it happened so they had license in those days berlin had literally hundreds of newspapers and magazines and uh, their their journalism was more personal and more uh kind of semi-fictionalized than a lot of journalism today, even though we have fake news today. But, uh, you know, he had license to write, uh, to spin tales. And um, it's, it's interesting. He wasn't a great journalist as a young man. I don't know how far he would have developed, but you see the signs of the nascent filmmaker in those. And so Dancing on the Edge, I thought it was a good uh, image of, um, you know, it's like dancing on the edge of an abyss or a volcano. <clears throat> because he was having a good time. Weimar was full of riotous uh, hedonism, um, homosexuality, bisexuality, all kinds of licentious behavior, a lot of violence, and a uh, great time for a journalist, but a scary time as well. And um, you're dancing on the edge of an abyss. And Wilder had this sense of grace and rhythm and survival skills, so it's kind of a good image for his whole life. And you also mentioned his journalistic work. Well, how did it influence his cinematic vision? He had a couple of films. One of them that you said you were uh, you were present on the set, uh, front page. He also had another great film, Ace in the Hole. So, how did his his career, his journalistic career uh, influence his movies? Yeah, he was very um, you know kind of hard edged about. He, you know, the front page by Charles MacArthur and Ben Hecht is a great play. All journalists love that play. It's just delightful, but it's, it's pretty dark in its humor. I mean, there's a lot of terrible behavior by the journalists back in those days. Yellow journalism, we call it, and <clears throat> very cynical. And um, so Wilder made a film of that, and he, he made it less romantic and more... Um, critical of the journalists it's uh it's not as funny as the play but it's it's a good film and uh it it shows the the crass uh hardness of the journalists and and jack lemon's character wants to escape all that and have a normal life but he can't really escape and uh uh, neil sinyard and uh, adrian turner wrote a good critical study wilder and they said it's really a faust story where jack lemon's character is faust and Walter Matthau's Mephistopheles uh, keeping, he's like the devil keeping him coming back and kind of ruining his marriage, his impending marriage to keep him as a journalist. And uh, it's about the struggle for a man's soul. So it becomes a rather serious film. And there's a prostitute character who is kind of miscast uh, with Carol Burnett, but she has a good scene where she spits at the journalist and she attacks them. It's a very powerful scene uh, for their heartlessness and cruelty. And, uh, he, you know, he didn't mince words. And then uh, Ace in the Hole is a corrosive film about journalism. It's a great movie um, that 
uh, it's about a journalist played by Kirk Douglas, who he, he's a kind of a scoundrel. He winds up in a small town paper in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and he's bored and contemptuous of the whole scene, but he finds a man trapped in a cave, and he realizes he can milk this as a good story, so he keeps this guy trapped in a cave longer than he should be, and it, it winds up the man can't get out. It's it's uh, a disaster, and he, he dies as a result of what this journalist does. But he whips it into this journalistic frenzy, and other journalists come, and the public comes. It's it's like a carnival atmosphere. The film was retitled "The Big Carnival" by Paramount to try to make money off it. It didn't do well at the box office because it's as Wilder said, it told the audience they're sons of bitches, you know. So it's an indictment of the public. Um, kind of being voyeuristic about tragedies, and um, but it's a, it's a morality tale too because uh, Kirk Douglas's character realizes how, how wrong he is and uh, winds up basically uh, allowing himself to be killed. And it's a, a great film, really great film. And Wilder often said that was his favorite film, partly because it was a film modi. I like film modi. Uh, Modis, because films Modi, because they're films that are uh, misunderstood or despised by the public. It, it was it was well received in Europe, you know, and uh, they saw it as very critical of America, which it is. But America wasn't receptive to uh, self criticism. But in Europe, they 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 loved it, and uh, people love it today. Spike Lee is a big fan of it. For example, he's talked about remaking it. It kind of predicts a lot of things that went on that go on today. Uh, you know, with 24-hour cable news, they often focus on disasters, and they it's very voyeuristic. Uh, there was a famous case in America of a, a little girl got trapped in a, a well, and they CNN showed it for days and days and days, and she was rescued. But Ace in the Hole was was inspired by uh, two incidents. One was a little girl in Los Angeles got trapped in a hole, and it was the first time something like that had been covered by live television constantly, and uh, she died, unfortunately. But there was also a cave-in in 1925 in uh, another state where a guy named Floyd Collins was in a cave, and the journalist kept a journalist kept going in and won the Pulitzer Prize for flight uh, for his reporting and uh, it became a circus and, and that's what they were inspired by but you know we see a lot of voyeuristic journalism on television and um, and a lot of fake news you know this is kind of fake news because uh, the journalist is lying to the public a lot about the rescue operation and and in the front page he deals with a lot of exaggeration and phoniness by the journalist so he's he's not sentimental about journalists he he understood them very well, being one of them. And, you know, Berlin in the 20s was a real uh, wild journalistic environment with a lot of uh, sensationalistic stories and uh, a lot of competition. And, and he shows that. And being an old journalist myself, I like that. And that's one reason I got along well with Wilder right away. Old journalists kind of get along with each other. And even though I was only 27. I was already an old journalist in a sense. And I got along with Samuel Fuller for that reason too. And he became a good friend of mine. He was a journalist and filmmaker and we hit it off right away, you know? And, and, uh, so I, I've always loved Wilder for that reason as well. Can, can we maybe talk about the, some, some other German expatriates who fled Germany 
maybe some 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 did that before him and some with him. Um, Fred Zinnemann, Edgar G. Olmer, the other people you mentioned in the book. Yeah, there was quite an expatriate community of Germans and other um, Europeans in Hollywood during the post-Hitler period. And numerous good books have been written about it and documentary films. And uh, the first one who came over was Ernst Lubitsch. And uh, he was uh, the most important director in Germany in the early 20s. And he made these big spectacles. We think of him as a comedy director, but it, he, he was making good comedies, but he also made spectacles like Madame du Barry was uh, the first German film that really did well in America after World War One because Americans were still hostile to Germans. And Cabinet of Dr. Caligari by Robert Vina was imported to America and there were protests like you shouldn't show a German film, et cetera. You know, the American Legion protested it. But Lubitsch's film was a very racy, modern kind of sexy take on uh, the French revolutionary period. And the audience really liked it because you know, D.W. Griffith was the leading American filmmaker and he had a Victorian sensibility and he made you know, historical epics like Birth of a Nation, Orphans of the Storm, Intolerance, uh, but they weren't as um, sexually oriented as uh, Lubitsch's films were, and uh, Lubitsch's attitude towards sexuality was always very sophisticated and very tolerant toward uh, adultery and unusual sexual relationships, so uh, the audience really thought that was great, and his command of... Uh, crowds and spectacle was great and it, that was the time of great economic hardship in germany when inflation was rampant and a lot of people were unemployed and you could you could get extras for very little money and so literally had thousands of extras and uh wonderful sets you know they had great big sets and, and beautiful uh, designs lubitsch was the son of uh taylor his father and mother were ran a tailor uh, shop for women and he, he was always fascinated by clothing and textures. And so the textures are very beautiful. But So he made these features and the uh, uh, spectacles and they brought him over in 21, 22. And he uh, soon revolutionized Hollywood. Um, he made um, Rosita, which was a, a spectacle. And, and um, but then he began making romantic comedies and he was really the father of the romantic comedy. And he revolutionized Hollywood with The Marriage Circle, which was a very sophisticated comedy. And most of his comedies were set in Europe because you could sort of get away with more by saying, oh, those naughty Europeans are, you know, having adultery. And, but the audience just loved that stuff, and it was much more sophisticated than they were used to. So he was, Wilder joked um, with his usual dark humor, Lubitsch was one of the talented ones who were brought to Hollywood and didn't have to flee like I did. And so it was long before Hitler, but then Fritz Lang came over and he came over around the same time as Wilder. He was a refugee from Nazism and he was another really important German director in the twenties. And, um, many others, uh, William Dieterle and, uh, Joe Mai and, uh, uh, a lot of other important directors came over and actors like Peter Lorre and, and various people. And, and there was this influx, Thomas Mann was the most famous, uh, German refugee in Hollywood. They had a salon at Selke Vertel's home, as I mentioned, and a lot of great literary people were at the salon. Um, Bertolt Brecht was another really important person, a great playwright, and 
he wrote some screenplays in Hollywood, but he, he, he despised Hollywood, wrote some great poems, putting Hollywood down. And he, he was later uh, called to testify before the House Committee on Un-American Activities. And he, um, he, he fled the country right after that. He went back to East Berlin. And, um, but so these people brought a lot of creativity and uh, culture and sophistication, cosmopolitan attitude toward America. <clears throat> and um, Lubitsch wound up hiring Billy Wilder, even though Lubitsch, I found out, didn't, didn't like to hire Germans, particularly or Austrians, <clears throat> excuse me, because he didn't want to feel, didn't want people to feel that he was typecast in that way. He was very American in his humor, as Jeanette McDonald said. But he did work with Wilder. Uh, Wilder's big break after several years writing not so good films uh, uh, was when he got hired to do Bluebeard's Eighth Wife for Lubitsch with his partner Charles Brackett. They were teamed on that film by Manny Wolf, who was a, a very smart executive at Paramount, the story editor, who said, uh, you know, uh, Lubitsch, you ought to work with these two guys. And, Brackett became his writing partner for a long time, and he was very different. He was a, um, a wasp, a Protestant, um, blue-blooded, um, wealthy guy from the East who's, he was actually a bank president, uh, ran his father's bank, and uh, wrote novels. He was a member of the Algonquin Roundtable group, and uh, um, his novels were not terribly good, you know, but he thrived as a screenwriter, but he needed Wilder to thrive. Each, each one brought complimentary things to uh, um, the team. Brackett Wilder credited with helping him learn English in a sophisticated way because he, he was struggling to learn English through listening to the radio, soap operas, baseball games, music, things like that, and talking to girls, you know, he got a lot from dating girls and reading comic books and newspapers, And but he needed a more sophisticated uh, English wordsmith, and Brackett was that, but they were very different. Brackett was a conservative Republican, Wilder was a liberal uh, Democrat, and he, he was, uh, they, they eventually had a big split and it was, it's revealed in Brackett's diaries, which were published a few years ago. The real reason for the split was Brackett was against the um, the left wingers who were testifying before the House Committee on Un-American Activities in '47. He thought that they should be compelled to to admit they were communists and testify about their political beliefs, which is really against the Constitution because in America we have freedom of. Uh, political speech, freedom of speech, and uh, you're not supposed to be compelled to say what your politics are. And these men were compelled, and then they were blacklisted. And Wilder was vehemently against the committee and said at one point, he told Brackett, I spit on the Congress of the United States, which is quite a statement for Wilder as an immigrant to make. And he stuck his neck out supporting these men, and they had bitter arguments, and Wilder basically decided he didn't want to work with Brackett anymore. They did a very good political satire called A Foreign Affair in 1948, 47-48, and Brackett became uncomfortable about it because, you know, the committee was investigating leftist influence in films. And uh, it's a very uh, sharp satire of American uh, pur Puritan behavior. Uh, it's about a 
Puritan uh, congresswoman reactionary who goes to uh, Germany to study the morale of troops over there. And it's portrayed very realistically that these guys are fraternizing with German women and trading with the black market, things that really go on. And, and she's scandalized, but then she gets corrupted by it. She falls in love with a corrupt uh, army intelligence officer. It's a very good satire of American... Uh, he Wilder did a lot of satires of innocent Americans abroad who get corrupted or in a, in a positive way get become more sophisticated uh, by the exposure to Europe, you know, and he's... He, he blends, like Lubitsch did, European and American sensibilities for an American audience and makes it uh, palatable. And uh, But then Brackett and Wilder did one more film. They did The Great Sunset Boulevard about Hollywood, and then they split. And Wilder had different partners for a while in the 50s until he discovered I.A.L. Diamond, who was, like him, a Jewish immigrant from uh, Europe, and he was a Romanian. But he came over as a child, so he didn't have an accent. He spoke English very well, and uh, Wilder always liked to have a collaborator to bounce ideas off. And he was very social, too. He didn't like working alone. And uh, it did help him to have a collaborator. And, and Diamond was a very witty guy and uh, had a dark sensibility like Wilder. And I, I think he, he, he enabled Wilder to be Wilder. And, and some people think Wilder was better with Brackett, but some pe there's a theory that Brackett kind of held in some of Wilder's excesses, and uh, Diamond allowed him to be more vulgar, crude, whatever. This is the negative view of Diamond. I think Diamond allowed Wilder to be more himself, and they had some very scathing uh, films about America and our sexual hypocrisy, such as The Apartment and Kiss Me Stupid. I think those are great films. So I think that being with Diamond made him totally himself. And I like his later period, partly because, you know, that's that's what they brought to the films. The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes is a great film, even though it's been cut to some extent by the production company. And um, Avanti is one of their best films. It was kind of ignored in America when it came up. But it's a delightful movie about, a <clears throat> once again, an American kind of reactionary guy played by Jack Lemmon who goes to Italy and uh, falls in love with a very uh, sexually liberated young English woman, wonderfully played by Juliet Mills, and becomes a better human being, you know. And it's a very strong critique of America and the whole Nixon sensibility. And Wilder was making fun of Nixon's values during in the front page in Avanti, etc. You know, great social satirist. Yeah, uh, I remember that I watched Avanti, I guess it was four or five years ago, and I came across that movie quite by accident. I didn't even know it was Billy Wilder. I had it in a friend's collection, a friend had it in his collection, and I saw Billy Wilder and I watched it. I was amazed, and I was amazed how, much, how why I didn't know about this film, because it did not get a lot of, let's see, it did not garner a lot of critical acclaim that it really deserved. And I found the political satire in that movie quite witty. <laughs> they, they even talked about the Middle East. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's back amazing. Yeah. It, it talks about Israel having um, nuclear weapons, which is, you know, I, I don't know another American film that talks about that. That's Israel won't admit they have nuclear weapons, but they talk about that in that film. And yeah, they have very sharp comments on the Middle Eastern situation. And uh, uh, it really uh, seems more prescient today. That film was ignored in America and and kind of um, 
despised in a way by audiences and reviewers because that was a period of free love and um you know this early 70s is kind of like a continuation of the 60s and wilder ironically began began to seem old-fashioned to some people because he believed in romance he was actually a very romantic guy and the 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 one thing I, I, I try to dispel in my book all the way through is the notion that he was a heartless cynic who didn't believe in anything and he was cruel and misogynistic. I don't think any of that is true. I think he was, a, uh, as, as Diamonds called him, a disappointed romantic. He said he was like uh, Schnitzler, who wrote La Ronde and other great plays and... and um, uh, he was like Lubitsch. Uh, he was a romantic, but he was dealing with the real world and, and the collision of romantic ideals with uh, harsh reality. And so that film does that. But Wilder's style was very classical in that period. Uh, he didn't go in for the, you know, the wild camera work and out of focus shots and all kinds of stuff that was kind of trendy at the time. So he seemed classical like some of the other old directors who, who were working at the time, and the audience didn't like that. And I remember back then, if you, if somebody wanted to insult you, they'd say, you're romantic. I used to hear that myself. You're romantic, as if that's a bad thing, you know. And But that's a very romantic film. It's his most Lubitschian film. He tried to make films in the style Lubitsch several times and didn't quite succeed until that film. But it shows really who he is. And... Uh, French critics and uh, other people appreciated the film uh, as the, you know, that happened with Ford and other directors too. And uh, their late work was appreciated in Europe, but not in the United States. But Wilder became more of a European director again, partly by choice and partly by necessity. He worked in Europe on Fedora, which is uh, kind of a, a problematical film, but it's, it's, uh, very moving in, in many ways. He made that in Germany. He went back to Germany and made a film. And, um, you know, he um, he became more European. He, he was exploring his European sensibility in, in contrast to all the Puritanism and uh, reactionary attitudes that he was seeing in America during the Nixon period. Um, uh, you, you've actually touched upon a lot of other questions that I had, which is great. Charles, I wanted to ask about Charles Beckett and how his friendship kind of transformed his life, which you talked about. And Ernest Lubitsch is, again, I first came across Bill Wilder's movies and then I discovered Ernest Lubitsch. Uh, yeah, and uh, it's a sad thing that we didn't really have him in the second half of 20th century. Uh, he was a brilliant director. And uh, if I'm not, and there's this famous story that uh, Billy Wilder had a big sign in his office, how would Lubitsch do it? Yeah, that's where I got the title of my book on Lubitsch, uh, How Did Lubitsch Do It? And um, <clears throat> he had this sign up on the wall, and Saul Steinberg, a well-known artist, did a rendering of it for him, beautiful cursive letters. And, and Wilder said, if, if there's anybody I would rather be, aside from myself, it would be Ernst Lubitsch. And he, he was his idol, and... Um, he became friends with him and, and actually lived with him for a while when Lubitsch had a heart attack. Uh, Wilder moved in with him and took care of him. And uh, he worked, uh, Bluebeard's Eighth Wife, I don't like very much. It's it's an attempt to do a screwball comedy, which was not really uh, suited for Lubitsch because screwball comedies are very rough and violent. Men and women slugging each other and things like that. 
because sex was being policed by the uh, <clears throat> the production code came in in '34 in a big way, and uh, Lubitsch was just finishing *The Merry Widow*, which is very racy and and romantic and sexy, but. They made some cuts in that, but they've been restored since then. But after that, he took a break and uh, became head of production at Paramount, which he wasn't really suited for. But he was reassessing how to how to work in the, uh, the new code era. And uh, he made Angel, which is a marvelous film. It's his most oblique film. He was known for oblique treatment of sexuality, kind of hinting at things that the audience understood what he was talking about. But he got around the censors because he wasn't blatant. And one of the censors said, well, we know what he's saying, but we don't know how he's saying it, so we can't cut it. And uh, Angel is, is a very candid film about a woman who, aristocratic woman played by Marlena Dietrich, who moonlights in a Paris brothel, which is really hard to get away with in the age of censorship, but Lubitsch does it. And uh, But then they made Bluebeard's Eighth Wife, which is rather course but then they made Ninochka which is a great film Lubitsch directed with um, Bracken and Wilder and Walter Reich uh, one of uh, Wilder's friends from Germany uh, wrote that great film and it's about a um, emotionally repressed commissar played by Greta Garbo who comes to Paris on a, on a trade mission and um, <clears throat> she has a, a rather matter of fact view of sexuality she's not a prude she she enjoys sex but she's not romantic at all you know and so often wilder characters are like that that they're um, trying to uh, he deals with this problem of sex without emotion and how people are incomplete without engaging their emotions their their you know sex without love is incomplete for wilder and so she falls in love and becomes susceptible to romance when she meets a gigolo in paris played by melvin douglas and gigolo characters often appear in wilder because his work as a tea dancer was a kind of a gigolo type situation although in his his series on it he makes a big point of saying he didn't have sex with the women but it's a quasi-prostitution job. And so he, he often returns to the theme of uh, male gigolos, like in uh, Sunset Boulevard, where the screenwriter is taken in by this rich older lady. And it's quite clear he, he is her sexual partner and he feels guilty about it because he doesn't love her, you know, and he loves the younger woman and it's a tragic situation. So Wilder deals with that a lot. And Ninochka is a very funny and very charming and very moving film, a great film. And Wilder got an Oscar nomination after being in Hollywood for just five years, which uh, put him on the map. And and um, he was still writing some undistinguished films for a while, but he did a wonderful movie called Hold Back the Dawn that Mitchell Lyson directed that I think is the uh, equal of anything he uh, Wilder directed. And it's his most personal autobiographical film. It's about a Romanian gigolo played by Charles Boyer who tries to emigrate to America, but he has to stay in Mexico for a while because that's what you had to do to get a, a visa. You had to apply for a visa, and a lot of people were stuck in Mexico waiting for months or years even. And so he desperately uh, marries this uh, innocent young woman played by Olivia de Havilland, who comes on a vacation from California 
and he's taking advantage of her, which often happens in a Wilder film. He's very callous and taking advantage of her sincerity, and it's a wonderful performance by de Havilland. Very moving story, but then he becomes ashamed of himself and falls in love with her and um, uh, has a transformation like a lot of Wilder characters do. It's a great film and um, kind of little known, but that's the film that made Wilder want to be a director again because uh, Lyson and Charles Boyer cut a scene that Wilder valued a lot where there's a cockroach on the wall of the sleazy hotel in Mexico where Boyer is stuck and he starts addressing the cockroach as if it's him and saying, you know, you can't get a visa, you can't enter the country. And, you know, he's comparing himself to this vermin, which is kind of how America sometimes looks at immigrants. And um, uh, Boyer said, I don't want to talk to cockroaches. And they cut that out. And Wilder was extremely upset. And... Um, he came back to the uh, office with Brackett and he said, okay, the son of a bitch won't talk to a cockroach. She won't talk to anybody else for the rest of the film. They were still writing the third act of the film. And uh, Boyer doesn't talk very much in the last act. And you'd think that might hurt the film, but it doesn't. But he he's very glib in the early part of the film. And he's, he's giving a good line of um, BS, you know, to this woman. And then he, as he's ashamed, he starts being more taciturn and doesn't say much. And that's really quite effective in the film because he's becoming a better person. But Wilder was so angry that he became a director and he wrote The Major and The Minor with Brackett. And that's a very daring film. And it was sold to Paramount as a kind of a very commercial film, which it was. But it's really a film about pedophilia. It's really kind of astounding when you look at it today. Back then, they didn't realize it. It's about Ginger Rogers masquerades as a 12-year-old girl on a train to have a youth ticket because she doesn't have much money. She's working as a masseuse in New York, which is kind of like a call girl. Um, and then she flees New York out of disgust, and she goes on the train. She meets this uh, myopic uh army officer played by Ray Milland, who, who thinks she's a kid, but he, he likes her and he lets her stay in his compartment. And, you know, today it seems very risque. And back in the, uh, when, when they arrive at this military school where he's teaching, um, his fiance is outraged that this woman stayed in his train compartment. But then they say, well, it's okay because she's only a 12-year-old girl. And they say, oh, okay, great. You know, <laughs> But today you'd be arrested if you said, she's a 12-year-old girl. Oh, my God. You know, so he gets away with it. And it's really Lolita, as Wilder said, in uh, Amer middle America in 1942. It's pretty amazing. Uh, Wilder got away with a lot of stuff like Lubitsch did because they were very sophisticated and they pulled the, uh, pulled the wool over the eyes of the censors, got away with it. Yeah, when I watched uh, Major and Minor, that's exactly the same thing that came to my mind. But maybe because I was looking, watching the movie from a modern perspective, you know, I we've heard a lot about these things, and we was watching the movie. So, God, is that appropriate? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very, very inappropriate, but that's a real satire on American myopia because these people don't understand what's going on, and and um, the only person who understands it is this teenage girl who understands it, and she. She's sympathetic to Rogers. And this brings up the whole theme of the masquerade, which permeates Wilder's work. People are always masquerading as 
something they're not. And the classic example is Some Like It Hot, which most of the listeners have seen, where these two men dress as women because they're fleeing from the uh, Al Capone mob in Chicago. They witness the St. Valentine's Day massacre. And so they desperately join a girl's band and they dress as uh, women. And you have to suspend your disbelief to some extent because they're not the most convincing women, although Tony Curtis is more convincing as a woman than Jack Lemmon. But it's, it's, it's extremely funny. One of the greatest screenplays ever written by Wilder and Diamond is hysterically funny. But um, I wondered for a while until I did my book, why is Wilder so obsessed with the theme of the masquerade? It happens in film after film. And then I realized after a while that's very common with exiles because an exile has to masquerade whether he or she likes it or not because you're you're trying to assimilate into a new country and if you try to keep your accent and your customs you can you can do that or uh, some people try to get rid of their accent and customs but one way or another you have to fit into the new country or you're going to be in trouble and so you're becoming something you're not and it's a masquerade so exiles it becomes second nature. And, and when I read the books on exiles, I, I realized that they talk about that a lot. And um, Wilder was in exile, I guess, five times over, and he constantly had to fit in. And you have this kind of uh, wry perspective on your fellow citizens when you're uh, an exile fitting in, like you're kind of looking at them side-eyed and they don't realize that, that you're skeptical of them but you're pretending to be one of them you know it's 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 a typical situation for uh, immigrants but that's part of his view of life you know that we're all kind of playing social roles it's very sophisticated to deal with role playing in a movie and um, it gives a dual perspective to everything and and also the characters kind of get trapped in their masquerades and their disguises and The most tragic version is in Fedora, which is based on a novella by Tom Tryon. It's about an old actress, kind of based on Greta Garbo or Dietrich, who um, has lost her beauty through age in a disastrous operation. So she, she has her daughter masquerade as her and pretend to the world that she is still Fedora, the great star. And it's the ultimate tragedy, a loss of identity. The poor woman, a young woman, loses her identity and winds up killing herself. And uh, that is loss of identity on an even deeper level than masquerade is what exiles have to cope with. You know, like, who are you? Are you still an Austrian when you live in Germany? Are you still uh, an Austrian when you move to Paris, when you move to America? Who are you? Are you an American or what are you, you know? And Wilder... um, told a, a very moving story about how he got into America from from Mexico. It's, you know, that's why Hold Back to Dawn is so autobiographical. He had to go in to uh, talk to, uh, uh, at the American embassy in Mexico, and uh, they had to let him decide whether he could get in the country, and sometimes you have to stay for a long time, but you'd have to have papers, you know, saying you weren't a criminal, etc., but He said, I don't have any because, you know, if I wrote to the Germans or if I went back there, I'd be arrested and, you know, because I'm a Jew and I I couldn't get papers from the Nazis. So the the, uh, assistant counsel, whose name I found out was Willis Myers, 
and he was an amateur magician. He was a, sh- a guy in the show business world. He kind of looked at Wilder, skeptic, or, you know, kind of empathetically, and he said, uh, so what do you do? And he said, Wilder said, I'm a writer, you know, and I'm a screenwriter. He had worked in Hollywood for six months and then had to go to Mexico. And so Myers kind of looked at him and looked at him, and he finally said, write some good ones. And he stamped his visa application, led him into the country. We all should be grateful to Willis Myers. He was this wonderful man who Wilder thanked when he got the Thalberg Award from the Academy as the man who made it all possible and had faith in him. And it's just a wonderful story, you know. It is, it is. I actually just wanted to bring that up. Uh, that is also the name of you, because your book has nine chapters, three parts. That's the name of the second part of the book, Write Some Good Ones. When I was reading it, I was just fascinated by that story, how just an ordinary man, right, gives us this this, this talented uh, movie director. Yeah, and actually, when Wilder told that story very movingly uh, to a national uh, world TV audience when he got the Thalberg Award, he didn't know the man's name. And uh, the next day, he got phone calls from some people, and, and somebody said, well, he wasn't the counsel. He was the assistant counsel because the counsel was on vacation. And I... I think somebody told him the man's name was Meyer or Myers. And so I looked it up and I found out, okay, Willis Myers. And then I found out through looking at uh, his collection of papers that he was a magician throughout his life. And uh, I think that he was part of the family of show business and he, he welcomed Wilder as part of the family. And it's, it's just, a, it's wonderful. But you know, that film deals with the xenophobia that Americans have toward immigrants. It's a big, clash in our country, as I'm sure your listeners know, that a lot of reactionary people want to keep uh, Mexicans and South Americans and Central Americans out of the country and, and Muslims and all kinds of people are, you know, there's there's a lot of hostility toward immigrants. But America is a nation of immigrants. Um, John F. Kennedy called that, uh, you know, we're a nation of immigrants. And, uh, you know, the Native Americans were the first people here, but then everybody else came from somewhere else and and um you know my family came from uh ireland and uh, you know if you're honest about it uh, and we we take pride in where we come from and um but then when when people get into the country sometimes they're hostile to newcomers they don't want to you know they're threatened it, it happens mostly in in tough economic times where people are afraid their jobs will be taken over by foreigners and uh, during the depression that was acute and uh, in recent years that's become acute where people try to keep people out of the country and uh, also the hostility since 9-11 toward Muslims and other people and during World War II it was a scandal I just saw a good film by Ken Burns the U.S. and the Holocaust how we kept a lot of Jews out of the country who were trying to get visas and we let a few in but many many we turned back and they died in the holocaust wilder lost family members in the holocaust this is very important to his his life and i studied this his mother and his stepfather and his uh, grandmother were killed by the nazis and um, he went to vienna in 1935 he'd saved some money from writing scripts and he he knew that his mother and her new husband were, his father had died before that, uh, they were in danger from Hitler because Wilder understood the situation that, you know, the Anschluss, which happened in 1938, where 
Hitler took over Austria and the Austrians welcomed Hitler. He knew that kind of thing would happen. So he went there to beg his mother and stepfather to come to America and they wouldn't do it. They were old and they were set in their ways and they didn't quite understand how threatening Hitler was. And, and he was very anguished by that. He couldn't get them out. And then during World War II, he was in Hollywood and um, he didn't en enlist in the army until late in the war. He, uh, at the end of the war, he joined the American army uh, as a civilian, actually. He was attached to the army to participate in the denazification effort of the German film industry, which never really happened because we collaborated with a lot of ex-Nazis in our intelligence operation and science and things. But Wilder uh, failed to get his mother out of Germany and uh, out of Austria. And uh, he thought she was killed at Auschwitz. That was what he, the best he could find out. That's one reason he went to Europe in 45. And But uh, two Austrian biographers of Wilder found a document at Yad Vashem in, in Jerusalem, which is the Holocaust Museum. They collect testimonials about Holocaust victims. And his mother's brother gave a testimonial during the war that she died in the Plaschow camp, which is actually the one portrayed in Schindler's List. If you remember the one run by uh, Amon Gerth, who was played by Ray Fiennes, this uh, psychotic Nazi who kills Jews for sport. Um, she died in that camp. And Wilder never knew that, apparently. And um, it's very ironic because he wanted to make Schindler's List as his last film. He wanted it to be a tribute to his family who died in Auschwitz. He was very marked by that personally, and his films show... Uh, um, kind of echoes of the Holocaust in, in interesting ways. I could talk about that, but <clears throat> he wanted to make Schindler's List, but Sid Sheinberg of Universal had bought the Thomas Keneally book for Spielberg to direct. He knew that it was a good project for Spielberg, but Spielberg was reluctant to do it for a long time. He thought he wasn't ready for it. It's a big, big thing to do. And he hesitated for years. He tried to pass off the project to... Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Martin Scorsese and Roman Polanski. Polanski was actually in the Krakow ghetto, as was Billy's mother, uh, when they had that um, uh, evacuation of the ghetto, you know, violent uh, takeover by the Nazis, and they took people to the camp. Uh, Polanski was in that as a child. His father cut the uh, barbed wire and told him to run. And he, he ran and hit, hit out for two years as a child. And he wasn't ready to deal with the Holocaust. He later made The Pianist, which deals with the Holocaust. But So Spielberg finally did it. And Wilder contacted him a couple times and um, said, either I could direct it and you could produce it or vice versa. And it would have been hard for Wilder at that point because he was getting old and it was a physically tough production in the cold and it was... Uh, not not terribly uh, big budget to deal with it, and, and, and he it might not have been he might not have been able to do it. But anyway, he called Spielberg at one point in the in the nineties and renewed his interest. And Spielberg had to tell him we're in pre-production on Schindler's List, and I'm going to start shooting in a couple months. And he said it was the most difficult phone call he ever had to make because he revered Wilder. And Wilder took it very well. He was very gentlemanly. And 
<clears throat> when he went to see Schindler's List, he was deeply, deeply moved, and um, he thought it was the greatest movie he ever saw, and he wrote this very gracious letter to Spielberg, said, you're the perfect man to direct it, it was wonderful film and he actually wrote a review of it for a bavarian newspaper or magazine um bavaria was the part of germany that hitler came from so he chose that on purpose and um he um he attacked holocaust deniers and he said you know when i'm watching this movie uh and people are crying all around me and he said i'm looking for my mother in the film you know i mean kind of this emotional anguish and he, he he ended the article by saying for people who try to deny the holocaust i just have one question where is my mother very powerful so he echoed the holocaust and uh, in, in, in uh, ace in the hole i used to think was kind of a holocaust uh, film in a way because it's a, a man cruelly trapping somebody and torturing him in a, in a cave and <clears throat> he, he's not trying to kill him but in effect he does kill him and um, it deals with that kind of callousness. And he made Stalag 17, which is about Nazis in, in a prison camp. Um, but he also, I didn't realize way back when, he, Wilder worked on a film called Death Mills that the American army made in 1945. It was shot by other people of footage of concentration camps and they put it together and they wanted to show it to German audiences in movie theaters and they wanted to force them to watch it to confront them with what happened. And um, there's a great sequence in there where the Americans march people from a town into a uh, death camp and they force them to, to see the bodies because a lot of people live near death camps and they tried to deny what was happening, even though, you know, in Schindler's List, it shows uh, <clears throat> ashes falling on a town from nearby and you could smell the burning flesh and people use the ashes for fertilizer etc and, and they still denied it but in this film people walk past it and women are crying etc and, and wilder echoed that in ace in the hall when the man dies in in the cave he has a woman who's a real idiot uh typical american families portraying them very harshly and uh when they when douglas says the man died she pulls out a handkerchief and starts weeping it's crocodile tears it's kind of like the woman in death mills wilder edited that film and, and did some of the work on the narration but I, his film the emperor waltz which is his strangest project <clears throat> excuse me it's a musical bing crosby musical set in uh, austria uh, and Wilder made it soon after the war when he was in a terrible state. He said he should have been in a hospital <clears throat> because he was still coping with uh, the Holocaust and his mother's death. And he made this seemingly escapist Lubitschian musical, but it's it actually is kind of a disguised metaphor for the Holocaust. That seems counterintuitive, but there was a woman named Nancy Stefan Fleur, a scholar, who wrote a good piece on it, and I, I thought it was very accurate about it because it's about two dogs who are, one is a uh, mongrel and one is kind of a pedi pedigree and they're mated in the film and uh, that causes great consternation. And it's kind of a metaphor for the uh, law that German uh, uh, Aryans could not mate with Jews. And it's a disguised metaphor. And there's a, a German 
doctor, Austrian doctor, played by Sig Ruman, who played concentration camp Earhart in Lubitsch's To Be or Not To Be. And he's trying to drown these dogs because he's horrified that they're mixed breeds. And, and Bing Crosby saves them, and uh, Emperor Franz Joseph uh, rescues them. And he was known for being relatively uh, tolerant toward Jews compared to other uh, leaders. And uh, so it is a Holocaust uh, allegory. It's a very grim, unfunny film, and that explains why Wilder was had the Holocaust on his mind. And even his wife and Charles Brackett couldn't figure out why he was doing this film, but that's kind of the secret subtext. As a last question, uh, did did his fame, Bill Wilder's fame, start to decline after nineteen seventies? He had some other great films, for example, Kiss Me Stupid, which wasn't critically acclaimed. What what happened to him in his later years of his life? Well, <clears throat> in the forties and fifties, Wilder was an iconoclast, criticizing American society and getting away with it. The audience enjoyed it because he was very entertaining and made the pill go down with entertainment, you know? Um, so he made a lot of daring films, challenging censorship like Lubitsch did, but Wilder was pushing the envelope even further. And eventually, I mean, the apartment is a very harsh critique of American values, but it has a beautiful love story. So the audience loved it. It was Academy Award winner for best picture, but some critics were kind of horrified by, um, you know, the corruption and sexuality and view but Wilder was thriving in that period, and his most successful film commercially was Irma Leduce in 1963, which is a very racy film, very tolerant of prostitution, attacking Puritanism. But then he, he was emboldened to make Kiss Me Stupid, which I think is one of his best films. I love it. And even today, there are people who love it and people who hate it. It's a very uh, racy sexual comedy about a small town piano teacher who is pathologically jealous of his beautiful wife because he's, he's kind of a schlub. And um, he, uh, Dean Martin comes to town playing a thinly disguised caricature of himself, very, very funny. And this guy and his partner want to sell a song to Dean Martin to get out of this horrible town they live in. And um, Dean Martin is sex crazed and needs a woman every night. So they, what they do is they they hire a prostitute from the local brothel played by Kim Novak, who's very touching and beautiful in the film and uh, pass her off as his wife. And this is based on a classic Italian play that's very popular in Europe. And um, it, it helped make Jean Moreau a star in France when she did the play and she played both roles. The wife winds up going to the brothel and winds up sleeping with Dean Martin's character and, and getting paid for being a prostitute for a night. And uh, But in Europe it was popular, but in America this shocked and scandalized a lot of reviewers and audiences. And the United Artists released it through a small subsidiary they used for art films. They were ashamed of it. And um, the reason I think it, it, it scandalized people was, um, <clears throat> first of all, the sexual revolution was underway, but it hadn't really taken force yet until the late 60s. If the film had come out two or three years later, 
when the production code collapsed and we started seeing, you know, racy films with uh, frank treatments of sex and uh, nudity and violence and language, the film probably would have been successful, but it was ahead of its time. But it also, um, you know, it it really showed a small town in America very realistically, uh, despite the stylization of the film. Ray Walston, I think, is very good playing the uh, uh, jealous husband. And he looks like a member of the audience. He's kind of a homely guy. Peter Sellers started playing the part. And Wilder told Fernando Trueba, the director, who told me that Wilder said the best film he ever shot was four weeks of shooting with Peter Sellers. But Sellers had a series of heart attacks and had to be replaced. And Sellers might have made it more palatable because he was a charming, funny comedian. But Ray Walston is like, the real thing and that's why i like that film i mean one reason i like it is that he's so real but that's what freaked out the audience and wilder was treated as if he had made uh, something really disgraceful and life magazine did this uh, vicious attack on him and wilder said that he and diamond after the failure of that film um stared at each other for six months in their office they said we were like a couple that had had a two-headed child and we didn't we were afraid to have sex again. <laughs> and um, they were really traumatized. They didn't know what their audience was, you know. It's, and um, so they wrote The Fortune Cookie, which is kind of a, a, you know, one of their lesser films. And it's kind of pulls some punches. It's somewhat restrained. But it did okay at the box office. But he was out of fashion. And rather than try to be in fashion by making films that pandered to the youth audience like Otto Preminger tried to do disastrously with Skidoo and other older directors tried that. But Wilder just stubbornly remained himself. And actually what happened was, ironically, he let his his true romanticism come out more and more. He became more openly romantic. And he was, he was clashing with the mood of the times because the times were... They like films like Blow Up and Midnight Cowboy and The Wild Bunch and, you know, uh, uh, and Wilder was making romantic films that were considered old-fashioned. Private Life of Sherlock Holmes is a very beautiful period film, but it's about a man who's a misogynist who falls in love and, and, uh, you know, uh, starts seeing women in a a new light and... uh, sees sex in a more romantic light and then Avanti and those films were totally out of sync with the public mood so Wilder was considered uh, old hat increasingly and his films weren't doing well at the box office and uh, they became fewer and far between and um, he wound up making Buddy Buddy which was a disastrous film that you know he shouldn't have made but it was a remake of a French film that was offered to him and I, I, it's, it's totally unfunny. And I, I think, you know, he could have made a funny film if he'd wanted to, but it's like a Samuel Beckett play. It's so bleak and, and grim that I think it's kind of his way of giving the finger to uh, Hollywood. You know, you want a crude, you know, stupid film, I'll give you one. But that sort of ended his career. People thought he, I, mean, I remember. In the mid-70s, I was having lunch at Universal with a producer, and she said, uh, 
I'm doing a romantic comedy, but I can't think of who should direct it. You know, there's nobody around who could do a romantic comedy. And I said, well, Billy Wilder. And she, she looked at me with shock and she said, Billy Wilder, he's not bankable. I thought that was really sad. So he was considered unbankable, this guy who had made all these hits and won all these, he won six Oscars and he couldn't get projects off the ground and he kept working with Diamond and then Diamond died and that really hurt him because he was, you know, bereft without a partner and, uh, but he kept coming to the office and working on projects and it's, it's sad. It's, uh, you know, America often rejects our greatest artists, especially when they become old, you know, <clears throat> that happens a lot. Um, we don't revere our uh, great old masters the way we should. And so, but Wilder was getting a lot of critical acclaim more and more as time went on and a lot of awards, but you know, he, he was skeptical about awards. He said, every asshole can get an, get an award, you know, <laughs> it's like hemorrhoids. Everybody gets it, you know? Um, but he got, you know, Lincoln center award and Thalberg award and, AFI award, etc. But um, he was, I mean, different people saw him in different ways. One of his uh, young allies, Rex McGee, a screenwriter, said he, he thought Billy handled it well. He was in a pretty good mood and accepting the reality of it. But um, other people said he was very bitter. Volker Schlondorf, the German director, said Wilder was very unhappy and very bitter about it. And in his interviews, he made very scathing comments about Hollywood in general and how they degenerated into trash. But on the other hand, he liked a lot of the great films that were made at the time, like The Godfather Part Two. he thought was one of the five best American films ever made. And uh, Full Metal Jacket, he said the first 30 minutes were you know, tremendous. The best scene he ever saw was the scene where Vincent D'Onofrio kills his, his uh, platoon leader and then blows his head off on the toilet. Great scene. And Schindler's List. So he wasn't, even, even though in Fedora, he and Diamond wrote a line for William Holden's producer saying the kids with beards have taken over Hollywood and I can't get a job. You know, it's very personal, but he liked some of the kids with beards, like Francis Coppola. He thought he was a great director, and you know he kept up with uh, the current scene. So he could have made films up to a point, and then he got rather old and infirm, and maybe couldn't have made a film after 1991 or so. But um, anyway, I deal with all all that in my book, Billy Wilder Dancing on the Edge. It's a, it's sad. His later years were sad. I gave him the Career Achievement Award from the LA Film Critics, and I criticized Hollywood for keeping Wilder in internal exile. Uh, but um, he, he made a kind of a quick joke. He, he was very anxious during that ceremony. It kept dragging on when the producer of Pulp Fiction was giving a long acceptance speech. Wilder was muttering under his breath, son of a bitch, son of a bitch, get off, get off. And he was getting very agitated. And I finally said, what's, what's the problem? He said, well, I have an appointment at four o'clock with a guy who might produce a film and I've got to get to the appointment. And this program is running late and he was very angry about it. And so he was still trying to make films, you know, it's, it's kind of tragic, but I mean, he had a tremendous great career and I covered it from his German and uh, Austrian journalism to German films which most people don't know about and there were some good ones in the early days and then this 
early Hollywood screenwriting is not very well known. I covered that and then his, his great career as a director and writer in Hollywood. So it's an amazing, wonderful career, and I, I revere Billy Wilder. Uh, Professor Joseph McBride, thank you very much for your talk. And uh, this conversation kind of made me want to go back and watch some of those films again and again. <laughs> good, good. I hope that's what happens with this book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, uh, it's wonderful to talk to you, and uh, uh, thank you for the good questions and, and your uh, shared respect for Billy Wilder. I really appreciate that. 